The Unstyled Podcast is made possible by Refinery29 and Airy, your body-positive go-to for intimates and loungewear. You know exactly what you'd want to wear while binge-listening to your favorite podcast. Never retouched and always real, Airy gives you the everyday pieces that make you feel confident, strong, and always the real you in your own style. Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Since Cynthia Nixon launched her campaign running for governor, there's been one question on a lot of people's minds. Is she really serious? But this woman is no protest candidate. Cynthia Nixon is sincere and determined to be New York State's next governor. We're all familiar with Cynthia's career as an accomplished actor. She is, in fact, just one Oscar away from that elusive EGOT. She began performing at age 12 to save up money for college because education was always the priority, even when she started landing prestige roles on stage and screen. Growing up in a middle-class, one-parent household, Cynthia was a public school kid, and she loved it. By the time she had her own children, she was a wealthy celebrity, starring on one of the most popular and beloved shows in television history. But Cynthia was determined to send her kids to public school too, and that was the catalyst. Cynthia was outraged to see how much the schools had changed. As a lifelong New Yorker, she'd always kept abreast of local politics and supported causes she believed in. Now she was passionately pivoting from advocate to activist. Cynthia joined the Alliance for Quality Education, working on funding and policy change. She later lobbied for marriage equality and pressed lawmakers on healthcare reform. The deeper she got, the more driven she became. Like so many others, her beloved home state had been ravaged by inequality. This is New York, she thought. Can't we do better than this? Six months into her campaign, that phrase has become a rallying cry. We can do better, Cynthia reminds us again and again. But can she do better? Voters are wondering. And her opponent is Andrew Cuomo, a seasoned politician from a historic political family, someone who's not quite ready to give up the governorship. Cynthia, however, seems undaunted by him and her naysayers. It was Cynthia who challenged Cuomo to a public debate, inviting constituents to see for themselves that she's both committed and capable. And it was she who pressured the incumbent to clarify his stances on issues like legalized marijuana and immigration incarceration. There's no doubt Cynthia Nixon is running to win. But the fact is, in many ways, she already has. Because whatever happens at the polls, on September 13th, Cynthia has become one of the key women at the forefront of a political revolution, a radical shift being led by a legion of first-time female candidates. She's out there and already a leader. And we're pretty sure this is just the beginning. Cynthia Nixon, it is such a pleasure to have you as Thank a guest you. on Unstyled today. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I would love to open up this conversation with an event, a fundraiser that I actually attended pretty recently in, in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, and it was packed. 
It was very hot. People really came from all corners of New York. And um, there was such a, a really beautiful energy in, in the room, such anticipation just waiting for you to arrive. And you opened up the conversation. You opened up your talk with a very personal story about your mom. And it was really around a rent discrepancy in the building that you were living in when you were when you were young. And I would love for you to tell us about that story. Sure. So after my my parents split up, I was about six, and we moved to a one-bedroom, five-flight walk-up, my mom and I. And we were there a few years, maybe three years. And one day she came to me, and she was really, you know, agitated. She obviously had something important to tell me, and she said that she had been suspicious lately about the rent that we had been paying. And so she actually went and checked it out, you know, checked out the record of of what the rent was supposed to be. And she discovered that our landlord had been lying to us and that he had been lying to us ever since we moved in. And that she was really angry, first of all, because the rent had been really hard for her to come by every month. But what I most especially remember is how proud she was of herself, that she hadn't just believed what she was told, that mm-hmm. she that she trusted her own intuition, that she trusted her hunch. And she investigated, and she caught him in the lie, and she confronted him about it, and she held him accountable, and she held him accountable retroactively, and she got our rent reduced, and she got our money refunded. And it was, I mean, I can tell you a million stories like that about my mother, but that, to me, was a really important first one that, you know, I was about nine, of her standing up for herself and and questioning and and standing up and and winning. Uh, and I feel like all of the moments when I have including now when I have stood up and done that, it's because my mom showed me that I could. It's because my mom showed me that actually I'm a chump if I don't. Yeah. I think that what was so important about that story is that I felt like everybody in that room could relate to that story because mm-hmm. it was about sort of really having nothing to lose and having to really go out on a limb Mm -hmm. and challenge somebody that you didn't feel like you it was appropriate to challenge or that you didn't or that you felt like had the power position in that confrontation but you felt you were right and then you explored and then you realized you were right yeah and I think there's something about that tone and about that connection to real people and real issues and that sense of democratization among all of us and that we're all in this together that I just felt like everybody, you could have heard a pin drop that night when you actually told that story. And it was a really beautiful way to open up the conversation. And I think that that's something as women, we that we have to just get better at. We have to get better at trusting our hunches and trusting our opinions, even if someone in authority is is telling us to move along or telling us that we're wrong or Oh, telling us, oh, little Missy, uh, you don't, you don't know how the big, big bad world works. Well, I think we're so used to so much scrutiny, and I think that you know we've observed it. If we look at you know Secretary Clinton's campaign, I mean the degree of scrutiny that she got that a lot of so many other candidates would never get is just so staggering. Yeah. There's a record number of women running for governor and Congress this year, and it's women like yourself and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whom you endorsed. And who I was endorsed by. Yes, who are coming to the table with the boldest and I believe the most progressive ideas from Abolish ICE to tuition-free public college. What do you think is motivating so many female progressives to run this year? 
Well, I think certainly Donald Trump being in the White House. Maybe the one thing we can thank him for. Thanking him is maybe far, but I think that there is a way in which he has thrown us back on our heels, right, in a way that we, when Obama was president, say, we figured, oh, the president, he's he'll, got it. He'll handle it. I can go back to whatever I'm focused on. But I think, you know, you saw the attacks on, on, on women by Donald Trump in his, in his speech, in his history. And then you see what he's doing, you know, Roe versus Wade is, is really hanging in the balance of after decades of us fearing that it was, now it actually is. is. And so I think that women across this country, partly inspired by, uh, by the horror of what Donald Trump is doing to our country— partly inspired by Hillary Clinton and partly inspired by Bernie Sanders. I mean, I think that those two Democratic nominees really got a lot of people involved in politics in a way that they hadn't been before. I think the prospect of uh, the first female president, it seemed like so much like it was going to happen, and it was incredible. And then Bernie Sanders, somebody who took something that just a few years ago seemed like it was maybe a pipe dream, single-payer health care, and really moved it front and center, at least in Democratic circles, as something that is the next big fight and that progressives are really putting their firepower behind. You really feel like one of those candidates, one of those kinds of candidates, you know, that really breaks out on the scene and that we can pay attention to because... You are so different from a lot of the other candidates that we're seeing. Well, um, I think that that's part of the thing, too, is I think that certainly a lot of, of an overwhelming number of the people who are running for office for the first time are women. But also, isn't it exciting? It is so exciting. I mean, so Stacey Abrams and I know. Seeing, seeing all these incredible, qualified, accomplished you know, women that are setting examples for young women today, not just to run for office, but to step out and actually sort of you know, claim a platform and talk about things that are not easy to talk about, but, you know. But, but, also, but also people of color, yes. queer people, uh, immigrants, Muslims. I mean, we're really seeing, it's a, it's, it is the backlash to Donald Trump, right? I mean, I think it's the, it's the, it's the backlash to the, to the white capitalist who's trying to roll us back to 1952. So going back to some of the women that you've cross-endorsed, Julia Salazar, Jessica Ramos, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Do you think that this kind of, this sisterhood that's kind of being created among women that are running today, which I think is really beautiful and inspiring because I feel like we've come from such a tradition of competition between women. Do you think that's going to help us win? I absolutely think it's going to help us win. And I think that we hear a lot about female competition. That's not been my experience in my life. And certainly when you look at women in politics, I mean, look, just look at the suffragist movement. I mean, look at how those women, they formed a movement and they formed, you know, over a number of generations. They just kept passing the baton that has led us to the moment that that we're at. And I think because... Because women running for office face special hurdles, some of a lot of them are external and some of them are frankly internal. The more that we can reach across to each other with a hand, with even a, a look and say, I see you, I see what you're doing and you're doing what I'm doing and I'm doing what you're doing and I want to amplify your voice and I want you to amplify my voice because we may be different in a lot of ways, but we're part of the same movement and we're fighting for so many of the same things. And that's when a friend first, however many months ago it was, 
told me to go look at, at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's website. I mean, that was the thing that struck me. Certainly, she and I have a lot of differences, but we have so many similarities, starting as education activists, people who are not taking corporate contributions, people who are talking about health care as a human right and abolishing ICE, and, and Democrats and progressives who feel compelled to run for office because we're at a place, like so many voters, so far ahead of where the the party establishment is. And the change that we want is really foundational. We really want to turn the system upside down because the ever-expanding inequality, economic, racial, gender inequality that's swallowing our democracy whole. So many of our elected leaders don't seem to realize that we're in a state of emergency. And I mean, I I supported Hillary Clinton, and I would give a lot if she was president right now. But I think even Hillary, for all of her strengths, could not grasp the moment that we were in, in terms of the incredible inequity in this country and how many people were we're beyond struggling. I mean, we're really, really trying to survive. I mean, just the millions of people living below the poverty line. It's just really, it's, it's, it's astonishing. And in New York State, I mean, I think this is one of the things that, you know, we have a sense like, oh, New York, it's such a wealthy place, Wall Street, all those celebrities, you know, and, and it's such a progressive place. It's a two to one democratic state. But because of Andrew Cuomo's empowerment of the Republicans, he's given control of the state Senate to the Republicans through his empowerment of this group called the IDC, these Democrats that have been incentivized to to vote along with the Republicans. There's so little progressive change that's happening here that certainly California is doing, but Washington, Oregon, Minnesota, New Jersey. I mean, so many states that are less blue than ours have just left us in the dust. And we have more than half of the kids in our upstate cities living below the poverty line in New York State. And Syracuse has the most concentrated black and brown poverty of any single city in the entire country. And and you don't think of New York that way, but it's the the inequality is between the richest and the poorest is just exploding and it's there's not, almost not far from Albany. There's almost nobody left in the middle. Yeah. When I think about that economic inequity, inequality, it makes me really happy that you're such an advocate for public school because I think that that's actually one of the issues where economic inequality really hits the hardest. Mm -hmm. Tell me about just like what your position is on, I I know a bit of the background and I know why it's so motivating for you, but I would love for you to talk about it because I do think it is something that unites all of us. So I grew up in New York. I went to public school. I mean, everybody I knew went to public school. I went to public school. I know. And uh, I'm the mom of three kids. And when my oldest child, Sam, who's now 21, entered kindergarten 17 years ago, I... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
walked into the school on the first day with him, and it was so different than the school that I had toured in the spring and picked out because of these massive budget cuts that had happened since I had toured it. And they had... Because How much time was that? Well, like I, I picked the school probably in April, and this was September. Oh, wow. They had had to let go of the art teacher, the music teacher, the assistant principal, and two-thirds of the paraprofessionals, you know, assistant teachers and lunchroom helpers and all the extra adults that are needed in a school. And I went to a protest that afternoon with my kid. And Did you get arrested then? Not that day. Okay. No, not that day, but uh, some months later because... Uh, I knew that as bad as the cuts were in my kids' school on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the cuts in Mott Haven in the Bronx and Brownsville in Brooklyn in communities of color whose schools were already so so deeply underfunded, how, how deep those cuts must have been. And so I, what I did is I joined together with other, other parents. I joined a group called the Alliance for Quality Education, and we organized rallies and protests, and we met with legislators, and I did get arrested. The following spring, we beat back on the citywide level almost $400 million in budget cuts. And that was the time that I realized that, you know, when you, you can fight harder when you fight for your kid, but when you, when you join together with other parents and you fight for all of your children together— you're a force to be reckoned with. And what I quickly learned was rather than fight budget to budget to budget on the city level, that there was actually a statewide solution called the Campaign for Fiscal Equity, which was a lawsuit that had been brought on behalf of the children of New York saying that their state constitutional rights were being violated because so little was being spent on their education in so many districts because New York's state schools are the second most unequally funded system in the entire country. They really are. Yeah, we've got a $10,000 spending gap per pupil between our 100 richest and our 100 poorest school districts, $10,000 per pupil. And so Where do you think that's coming from? I think that's coming from how segregated our system is. It's coming from how segregated, certainly racially, but also the fact that, that school funding is directly tied to property values. And that's what this lawsuit said, was that the state had to take on a much bigger share so that we could level the playing field for kids, whether they came from a rich, a poor, or an in-between school district. And $4.2 billion is owed to our kids. And this is something that Andrew Cuomo refuses to acknowledge, much less invest. And, you know, when the lawsuit was first settled in 2006, this is something I've been fighting on for 17 years. When it was first settled in 2006, Elliot Spitzer was the incoming governor. And he said, yeah, we're going to enact this. And we were halfway there toward funding it. And then Governor Patterson and Governor Cuomo came in and they cut out all that progress. And then they cut another 0.4 billion wow. and got us back way farther in the hole than we had been before we started paying down the lawsuit. So after year after year after year of going to Albany and saying, Andrew Cuomo, the highest court in New York State, says our kids are owed this money. Pay us this money. I, I decided what I think a lot of women decided this year. You know, we looked at who was in charge and we, we, we decided that if we really wanted change, we were the ones that were going to have to stand up and bring it because the people in office obviously weren't going to do it, weren't interested. I mean... I grew up in the suburbs. I went to public school. I went to a, I went to a SUNY school. Mm -hmm. It was the only way I was ever going to have an education because right. it was all my parents could afford. So I, I'm very passionately going to be following in your footsteps there. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's why I started acting when I was 12 because my, my mom warned me early. She was like, I am oh, not yeah. able to save any money for college. If you want to go to a private college, you better find a way to pay for it.
Speaking of Governor Cuomo, so you challenged him to a debate. He's accepted. What are you most excited about, aside from, you know, what we're what we're sort of currently talking about? What are you most excited about just saying to his face and really having a platform to have a discussion about? So, first of all, he's been governor for eight years and he hasn't had a one on one debate in 12 years. He he avoids them. So I'm very gratified that we're going to go toe to toe. He he actually sort of went behind our backs and with CBS decided all of the details of the debate. And we were given absolutely no input in terms of location or format or even sitting up or standing up or sitting down. But be that as it may, women often have a a whole bunch of hurdles to to get through. There's a higher bar for us. Nothing new. Nothing new, right? I'm really looking forward to saying, how can you call New York the most progressive state in the country when All of these things that you have promised, budget cycle after budget cycle, that never get enacted, like why why haven't we strengthened our rent laws? Why have you allowed the affordability crisis to just explode? Why haven't you funded the New York City subway? Why have delays tripled in your time as governor? Why do we have the worst on-time transit record of any subway system in the country. You saw this coming year after year after year, and you continued to defund the subway. Why haven't you done real criminal justice reform? Why haven't you ended cash bail or ensured a right to speedy trial? Why haven't you offered driver's licenses to our undocumented people if you really care about protecting them against ICE and and Donald Trump's deportation machine? You're ready. (laughs) You are ready for this debate. Earlier this week, many people on our content teams and across, you know, various departments at Refinery29 were working tirelessly on this poll that we launched about millennial women and their beliefs on voting and their preferences and, you know, really just what they're thinking about voting. And it's in preparation leading up to the midterm elections. And there's a piece that's going to be coming out called The Secret Lives of Millennial Women, because I think we all feel after the last election that was a real blind spot. You know, we didn't really see that so many women were not going to come out to vote. There's a lot of really, really interesting data that came out in this in this poll that we have shared with CBS. They've been incredibly supportive in the work that we're doing there, is that about half of millennial women do not identify as feminist. Mm-hmm. And in some cases... They really see the word feminist as not a label they would ever want attached to them. But you consider yourself a feminist. Absolutely. What do you think about that association with young millennial women? Well, I don't think that's anything new. I mean, I think since feminism first became a really a hot topic and an issue of debate, say, in the 60s, it's been a very polarizing term. Why do you think it is? Well, I think that... Women don't want to be seen as too confrontational or too angry or too much of a a nag, right? Women want to be seen as inviting and, you know, able to get along. Not disruptors. Not disruptors. Not, not school marms, not scoldy school marms. But that doesn't have to be, I mean, I don't think that, that French feminists or, or French people think that that's what feminism is. I, I think it's like democratic socialism. Like It's a label that really polarizes and scares people. But if you say, well, democratic socialism, you know, basically says that everybody has a right to uh, affordable housing, has a right to health care, has a right to education, has a right to justice. Most people would agree with that. And if you say, what is feminism really? 
Feminism isn't that women are great and men are terrible. Feminism means that women have and should have the right to be treated equally with men and should be given the same opportunities and also the same responsibilities as men. I think that most people, male and female, would agree with that if you if you really say what is feminism. But I, I have to say that I think that women like Beyonce and women like Emma Watson proudly taking on that, that label of feminism, it, it does a lot in terms of making it current and making it empowered. And I also think that, you know, I, I'm 52 and I, I know a number of women who are, say, a generation younger than me who are in their 30s who said, when I was young, when I was in college or just got out of college, I thought, oh, the feminist movement, it's so passe. We're, we're there. We're equal. Why, what are you complaining about? And then they have children. And then they start to see that in so many cases, not in every case, but in so many cases, the lion's share of the responsibility for the child or children, the lion's share of the responsibility for the home and the housework and the cooking and the shopping, and also the expectation that if you have a male and a female partner and there's a child or children, well, of course, it's the woman's career that's going to take the back seat. And I think that's when young women who have thought that feminism is something that they could throw out of their toolkit as something they don't need, all of a sudden they they go looking for it because they, they need it. They need to find it and they need they, they need to have the ability to fight those battles in the world and, and oftentimes in their own home. So what would you say is the most important reason why young women should come out to vote in this upcoming election? You mean for me or... or? For you and uh-huh. for a lot of the other candidates that we're super excited that are running, that do share a lot of our values in terms of, you know, supporting women and actually expanding on those freedoms that we've been talking about that seem to be, you know, so under threat right now. Right. Well, I think, first of all, I think it's important that everybody turn out to vote. And I think the more we all participate in our democracy, the healthier it is. But I think women in particular have to have a sense that their voices matter and their opinions matter, and they can help mold the shape of their city, of their state, of their country, but not if they stay silent and not if they if they stay home. It's a moment also when if we really show up, particularly for these women candidates, these new candidates who are running for office for the first time to, to transform the Democratic Party, to bring a new vision of what government can be, we have to show up and support them because we have to say, okay, if you're going to stick your neck out and give me something not just to vote against, not just to oh, a little better a mousetrap, like, oh, just, yeah, I'm going to show up and vote and I'm going to pick the lesser of two evils. But actually there's somebody running. Maybe they're new and maybe they have less experience, but maybe they're have the ability to transform our system. And I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a gamble on them because what we've got now is just not working. Last question. Yes. Cynthia Nixon, what is your advice to me as a first-time mom? (laughs) Come on, give it to me. Give it to me straight. So much. I mean, how just one jewel. I always remember this story of this son, this grown son and his 
elderly mother walking along and seeing a, a young woman with a, a new baby and them stopping and, and talking to her and the, the, the grown man who was a father saying to her, oh, you're so lucky, you're so lucky. Oh, I wish my kids were that age again. And it's, oh, it's the most exciting. It's the best time, blah, 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 blah. And they start to walk away. And the, the mom, who's like a grandma, right, turns back and her eyes are full of tears. And she says to the new mother, it gets better, I promise. And I think, <laughs> right? And I'm I, actually sitting here crying. <laughs> and I think that, of course, we have that moment of when we see people with their brand new babies, we think, oh, that was the greatest. I wish I was back there. But somebody like the grandmother in that story. She's been there. She's but she's seen been it. there and she remembers Actually, not just the the baby lust that you feel when you see someone with a, with a new with an infant, but actually how hard it is, and that everybody keeps telling you it's the most magnificent moment. But actually, and it is the most magnificent moment. But it does get better because it gets easier, and you get better at it. But your baby also gets better at it, and you're going to learn together. Well, thank you. <laughs> everybody in the studio is crying right now. Cynthia Nixon, it is such a pleasure to have you such as a, a guest on Unstyled. I know how busy you are, and this just means so much to us and our audience. And we're just rooting for you, and we can't wait for the election. Thank you. September 13th. <laughs> it's a Thursday. Be there. Be there. Be square. I hope you're inspired after hearing this preseason bonus episode with Cynthia Nixon. For even more unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be eternally grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and give us a little rating while you're there. You can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up to our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Bridget Todd, associate produced by Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena. Copy support was provided by Kelsey Miller. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. Please stay tuned as season three of the Unstyled podcast will be launching in just a few weeks, featuring must-hear episodes with a lineup of fascinating women like designing icon Jenna Lyons, actor and singer Cynthia Erivo, actor-writer-director Lena Dunham, activist-athlete Ali Raisman, and more. We'll see you back here for more episodes soon, and thanks for listening. <laughs>